A slinky can stretch from a six-floor window to the ground. Y'all don't really care about any of this. Belly button lint is made of clothing fibers, hair, and dead skin cells. It's awesome right there. A man sculpted a statue of himself using his own hair, teeth, and nails. Anybody want to go touch that? The eastern spotted skunk does a handstand before it sprays. So if you see a skunk and it's handstand, you are almost a half inch taller in the morning than the evening. So if you ever get measured, you want to do that in the morning. This is my favorite. Mike the chicken lived for 18 months without a head from 1945 to 1947. And I would assume that during that time, he was running around like a chicken with its head cut off, right? So some weird stuff, all right? And we've been talking about weird because God does call us as believers, as followers of his, to be weird, to be different. They have something about us that is not normal. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk more and more about what that means. And today, we're going to talk about what I believe is one of the most valuable things you have. One of the most valuable things that you possess. And how God has called us to be weird in the midst of it. All right? So somebody tell me, what's something valuable that you own? Good. Somebody else. A cell phone, very valuable, right? I started to say my house, but the truth is I don't really own my house. The bank is just letting me live there for a little while, right? What did you say? Amen. Whatever in your mind right now, just think what's the most valuable thing you have? The thing that when you think of your house or your possessions or what you own, what's the most valuable thing you have? And I'm going to tell you today that I think that we all share what can be the most valuable or the most important commodity we have. Because it's one of the few things that we own or have that we're not making more of. Anybody want to know what it is? Time. Bob, did you cheat today? Is it in the bulletin? It's time, right? You realize that we're not getting any more time. When you spend time, it is gone. Somebody said, be careful when you're killing time because it doesn't resurrect itself. And we live in a world where people are starved more and more and more for time. It seems that schedules are tighter and tighter, that demands are more and more, and that we live our lives constantly rushing to the next event or the next place. Nobody hardly works 40 hours a week anymore. It takes a lot more than that in order to keep up or to get ahead. You've got to work more than that. Nobody has just normal kind of nights anymore. We've got extracurricular activities. The kids have got soccer practice or baseball practice or both or dance practice or They've got to go get some extra work in and practice or the 18 hours of homework that came home today. We've got to get that done. And on top of that, we've got to move here and there. It just seems like time is constantly moving forward. In fact, somebody said the normal American supper now is a few Happy Meals, 15 minutes in between dance and soccer practice. It just seems that time is rapidly diminishing. And the curse of time is that what you realize 
is that once you realize you have not much time, you have not much time. I'm 37 years old. Average lifespan today is around 75. If I live to be 75, that's an if, and I am 37, guess what that means? Can you do the math real quick? I'm almost halfway there. I've got a couple of months and I'll be mid-life. Which means, if normal, most of my life has already happened. That's kind of depressing. Let's just all have a time of fellowship together, all right? That's the way the first service comes to me and goes, well, if, if that's true about you, what does it mean about me? I'm 85. I said, that means you're past due. That's what that means. <laughs> Luckily, he thought that was funny. So we all have this time. And here's the thing. We all have the same amount every day given to us. And what God calls us to do is to be intentional about what we're doing with it. Now, the truth is, if you want normal, if you want what normal people have, we said this last week, if you want what normally people have, just do what normal people do. And if you look at time management, normal people overschedule with things that aren't quite as important to accomplish things that will be forgotten in a few years. And if that's what you want, then do that. If your job is to make sure that your child is involved in every sporting event that comes along, then do that. If your job is to make sure that your child achieves every academic performance thing that is out there, then do that. If you want what normal people have, do what normal people do. But if you want what few people have, then you have to be a little weird and do what few people do. If you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke with me. Chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, we have this interesting story here about two people that have the same opportunity before them and that choose to use it in a different way. Now, I want to kind of preface the story that we're going to read from the Scripture with a a verse that comes later in the Bible. It comes from Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul's writing to the people of the church at Ephesus and he's saying, he's told them all these great things about what God has done for them and who they are in Christ. And then he says, here are some things I want you to do. And so he starts to talk about that going forward. And in Ephesians chapter 5, he says to them that he wants them to live as wise and not unwise. I want you to live in this world as wise and not unwise. And for the rest of the book of Ephesians, chapter 5 and chapter 6, he's going to give them what it means to live as wise and not unwise. But the first thing he does is he, over all of that, says, live wise, not unwise, making the most of every opportunity. The first thing he mentions when he says what it means to live wisely, the first thing he says is, Use your time wisely. Make the most of every opportunity. And in this morning, in this story, what we're going to look at is a story of somebody, or two women actually, that had the same opportunity brought before them. It's the story of Mary and Martha. How many know that story? Yeah, here's the thing. I've preached on that. I'm now going on 12 years of ministry. I've preached on this story three or four times in that 12 years. And inevitably... At the end of that, 
Somebody will come and defend Martha to me. Okay? In fact, there is no person in Scripture that is called down by Jesus that is defended more than Martha. And what they will say to me is, Pastor, just understand something. If there weren't Marthas in this world, Mary's couldn't sit at the feet of Jesus at all. All of us out here are taking care of stuff while they can go do whatever they want to do. Anybody ever heard that? You've thought it if you haven't heard it, all right? You know the story of Mary and Martha, right? We're going to kind of walk through it. But Jesus is coming to their house. Mary and Martha are there, and Jesus is coming to their house. Now, I just want you to think for a moment. Try to clear from your mind that Mary and Martha story that you know. What would you be doing if Jesus was coming to your house this afternoon? First of all, you would not be here. You've got an important guest. I can't be going to church. I've got stuff to do. Right? Then what are you going to do? Well, we've got stuff to put up. We've got, I've got laundry that's still on top of the, uh, still on top of the dryer. I've got laundry in the back. I've got stuff that I've got folded that's out that's not in yet. I've got stuff I've got to clean off the table. I've got to get the dishes ready. We've got to get the good stuff out because it's Jesus. This isn't anybody. We've got to make sure the meal's just right. I've got the menu in my mind. I've still got a couple of things I've got to pick up at Publix or Crow. Right? You're going to be, how many of you, that's you. In fact, some of you are sweating right now just even thinking about Jesus coming to your house, right? So before we jump all over Martha, Jesus is coming to their house. That's what it says. In fact, it's in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. It says, while they were traveling, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Now, what I think is interesting about that is, we would find out later that they probably shared this home, Mary and Martha, but whose home is it identified as? Martha's, right? And so Martha invites Jesus into her home. And it says there, she had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Mary was, what's the word there? Distracted by her many tasks. She came up and asked the Lord, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to get in that kitchen and help me get some of this stuff done. That's the Lyle paraphrase there. So here's the thing that's interesting to me. Two sisters, same opportunity, right? Right? Jesus is there. Jesus is with them. He's coming to their house. She is there with them. Both of them, Mary and Martha, are listening to Jesus or entertaining Jesus or welcoming him into the house. Now, one of them says, I got all these preparations to do, I got all this stuff to do, I'm going to make sure I take care of that, I'm going to make sure all this is going on. And the other is just sitting at the feet of Jesus. One is using the opportunity to be busy making preparations in order that she might make Jesus feel welcome, the other is seizing the opportunity to listen at the Savior's feet. Mary is making a deliberate choice. She wasn't being lazy. She wasn't being complacent. She wasn't trying not to help her sister. She just made a choice in that moment to sit at the feet of Jesus. This is one of those matters kind of moments. The other day I was sitting in the recliner in the living room. I had my phone. I was reading through emails. And Luke comes up to me and says, Daddy, hey, Dad, come come downstairs and play with me. 
And I gave the busy parents normal kind of response. Well, I will in a minute. I, just, hey, let me get through with this. When I, hey, when I get through with these emails, I, I can't right now. I'll be down there as soon as I can. You ever heard the parable of the persistent widow? The persistent widow never met anybody as persistent as Luke. All right? And Luke was like, no, Dad, come on, come on. Dad, it's been a minute. You said it'd be a minute. Come on, Dad, let's go. And just over and over kind of pulling at me, saying something. And I had important stuff to do. And about the 30th time he said it, it just kind of hit me. That those emails are going to be on my phone when I get ready for them. Put them down, went downstairs, and had an epic Lego battle. Right? Because there are times when things matter and we don't want to miss the opportunity. It's tempting to let those kind of moments pass because we're tired or we're other things to do. And one of the things is sometimes the things that are most urgent are not most important. And what we do is we allow the tyranny of the urgent to take over for doing what is important. Sometimes it's a control kind of thing. If we know we can control this situation, we want to take care of that because we don't know how to control the other. But sometimes it's just we have moments when we let the urgent take precedence over the important. Somebody has said, I've read this several times, that the devil can't make us really bad. He'll make us really busy. Something demands our attention, wants it, and we give it or we work towards it. But in the end, we're missing out on something that is vitally important. Consider the urgency in the voice. She says, Lord, aren't you going to tell my sister to come help me? Don't, Lord, I'm doing this all by myself. Tell Mary to get up and come. Can't you at least tell her to help me? I'm trying to do something nice for you. Let her come help me. I know none of you have ever heard that tone of voice between siblings before. Right? Dad, Eli's doing this. Maddie's not doing that. Tell him to come help. Dad, Luke is not helping me clean up. Go tell him to help me clean up. That's just our house. I'm sure that doesn't happen anywhere else. No, right? Any of you have a brother or sister? Anybody ever use that tone of voice with your brother and sister? Just keep those hands up, all right? Right? It just happens, right? You hear the urgency in her voice, and she's like, tell her to help. Jesus, I'm doing all this work. I'm getting the, I'm getting the drinks just right. I got, the, I got the fancy horse devers over here. Hors d'oeuvres, right? You've seen that doesn't make any sense how that's spelled, all right? I've got the fancy hors d'oeuvres over here. We're working on the dessert. I, I'm getting, the, you know, everything's just right. I'm getting it just, I want the plates to be special. I want all this to be special, Jesus. Just tell her to give me a little help. Most people believe, by the way, just a note, that God will never give us more than we can handle. You know that's not in the Bible, right? God will never put on you more than you can handle. That's nowhere in Scripture. Now, it does say God won't ever let you be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. And He'll give you a way out. But here's the reality that I figured out in my life. Sometimes God gives us more than we can handle to learn that we have to depend on Him. If you can do it all by yourself, guess who you don't need? God. 
One of the stories in the, in the uh, Old Testament that kind of bears this out is the story of Moses. Y'all know the story of Moses, right? Baby in a basket down the river, picked up, becomes an Egyptian. Um, gets in the Egyptian royal household, raised like that for 40 years. Kills a man, out in exile, comes back, rescues his people, Red Sea parts, Ten Commandments given. You remember all that, right? And while they're out there, Moses gets so overwhelmed that he says, I just want to die. It's amazing to me how many people in the Bible just tell God, just let me die. I'm done. Moses is one of those people, I just want to die. And God says, Moses, you're not going to die. He says, "Ah, uh-huh, here's what I'm going to do. you got too much on you. So I'm going to appoint some guys. I'm going to give them the same spirit I've given you. And when you have matters that come to you, you send them to these guys instead of taking everything on yourself. You can't handle it on your own, but I can give you help. It's called delegation. And here's the thing that God intends for you. God gives you exactly the amount of time you need every day to accomplish what he intends for you to accomplish. Sometimes we take on ourselves things that are more than what he intends. And if you find yourself overwhelmed by the task of life, you have to ask yourself, what is it that God intends for me to do? And what is the expectation I'm placing on myself? It's kind of like going to a buffet, right? How many of you like buffets? What's your favorite buffet? Chinese. Where's Eli? Chinese buffet. He loves... Anybody Chinese? What about... There's this place, by the way, there's this place in Jackson, Tennessee, if you've ever been there, called Old Country Store. Anybody ever been to Old Country Store, Casey Jones Village? It is a Cracker Barrel buffet. Unbelievable, all right? Anybody know what crackling cornbread is? They fry it up fresh right there on the thing. All right, so when you go to the Casey Jones Village Cracker Barrel buffet, they got all kinds of good stuff on there. And the truth is, you have to make some important decisions as you go down the place, right? Because if you decide, I want the fried chicken and the fried pork chop and the, and the uh, macaroni and cheese and the apples and the green beans and the okra, and, you, you know, if you decide you're going to do all that, they're going to be, I mean, you really don't need to make that decision. They'll be taking you out in a hospital, all right? Well, not an ambulance would get you to the hospital, but you know the point. So you make choices, right? I want the fried chicken or the fried pork chop, or most of us do. In life, we have to make and or choices. And the conjunction makes a huge difference. You remember, the, you remember conjunction, junction? How many of y'all know that? All right, anybody want to sing the song for me right now? Conjunction, junction. They weren't even singing, but they were saying, all right, what's well, your function, right? Conjunction makes a big difference because a lot of us in our lives, there are things that we want to do and we just want to add it to what we're already doing. For instance, in my life right now, I'm... In addition to pastoring this church, working on a Ph.D., trying to be a good husband and an available father for four children, I would also, there are other ministries I would like to do and conferences I would like to go to and books I would like to read and sports I would like to play. I'd love to play softball or or flag football or I'd love to um, be a part of, of coaching my kids in lots of sports and adding this and going here and being there. I'd love to do that. And the problem is if I start adding that too, so I say, all right, I'm going to pastor the church and I'm going to work on my Ph.D. and I'm going to be a good dad and I'm going to be a good husband and I'm going to do this ministry downtown and I'm going to read these books and I'm going to coach this sport and I'm going to play this sport. What's the problem? You can't do it. 
But if I start saying, or, it makes a difference. Martha had a choice, right? She could try to sit and be with Jesus, or she could try to take care of the house. The truth is, if you are making decisions on it, you are making decisions on a daily basis about what is important to you by the time you spend on it. And any time you have said the phrase, I just don't have enough time, what you're really saying is, I just really don't care enough. Anybody know what a Fibonacci sequence is? Got any math nerds out there? I know, so I'm a math nerd. Anybody know? You just don't want to raise your hand. Thank you, Kevin Steelman. Scott Harris, I see him. Uh, outages, math nerds right here. Good to see that. Fibonacci sequence, all right? That's when you take numbers and you just start adding them up. So you say one, and then the next number is one, and then you add one and one, and it makes two. Two and one makes three. Three and two makes five. Five and three makes eight. Eight and five makes 13. 13a makes 21. 21 and 13 makes 34. 34 and 21 makes 55. Just like that. You just keep going up. And here's the thing. The numbers start going up rapidly as you add more to it. And in our lives, the more you begin to add, it's not like adding one other thing will add a little bit of stress. It adds a lot. And if you add one more thing, guess what? It adds a lot. It starts growing exponentially. And so as a result, we find ourselves in a place where we don't have enough time to do what we think we need to do. And so normal people just fill their lives with more and more and more and more, and they never begin to whittle away at what's really important. What does Jesus say to Martha? Martha says, Jesus, tell my sister, come help me. Get in the kitchen. Help me get this stuff out. Let me get this clean. Listen, this is important. We're trying to do something nice for you. Tell her to help me. What does Jesus say? You know, you know the story. What does he say? I'm not going to do that. Mary's doing what she needs to do. She's taking advantage of this opportunity. Now, just a quick word. That doesn't mean nobody go clean your house ever. All right. It does mean, though, make sure that you're seizing every moment. Here's what the world tells us. There are three lies the world tells us, normal people tell us. Normal people tell us that we can have it all, we can do it all, and that we deserve it all. We can have it all, we can do it all, and we deserve it all. And the truth is, none of those are true. Anybody know who the richest man in the Bible probably was? Solomon, right? Solomon had it all. Solomon never drank from a Dixie cup a day in his life. Right? He never used paper or plastic. He had the finest of everything. He had the finest palace. He built this amazing temple to worship God. He had wonders of the world. He had gardens. He had wives. Lots of them. He had the finest of everything. In fact, people would travel. Other queens, other kings would travel to hear him. One queen traveled and said, I had heard about your great wealth. And basically says, I could not believe somebody could have that. And I got here and it is all true. And in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says even, chapter 2, if I wanted it, I got it. I did not deny myself anything. You know what he says after that? Just a couple of verses later, I hated my life. 
And then he says this, which is kind of interesting. I don't know why I worked so hard to get all that stuff because I'm going to die and I'll have to leave it to somebody else and who knows what they'll do with it. It's not worth it. So I'm going to tell you some weird things that we need to do with time. First of all, you need a Sabbath. What's a Sabbath? It's rest. Where do we first get the idea that we need a Sabbath? Where does it come from? It comes from God. What, where in the Bible? Genesis. That's pretty early, isn't it? Like Genesis 1 or 2. Kind of in that first few words of the Bible. How do we know that God intends for us to have a Sabbath? What does God do in that first part of the Bible in creation? He works for six days and then He does what? Rest. Here's the thing I want you to realize. Do you realize God was not physically exhausted? It did not tax God to create the world. So it wasn't like he was like, man, I am wiped out. I just got to go to bed. All right? So he did it as an example to us. And we know that because Moses, that guy we talked about earlier, when he comes down from the mountain after the first tablets break because the guys are, you know, worshiping a golden cow, and he goes and gets the tablets, he brings it back down. What does it say on the tablets about a Sabbath? It says, honor the Sabbath and make it, remember it, make it holy. We need rest. We need the ability to rest from our labors, to not do it. Now, when Jesus came along, by the time he got there, the Pharisees had made it into something that it wasn't. There was lots of things going on. And Jesus comes along and says, listen, the Sabbath wasn't made for you to have rules about what not to do. You had to work at not working to make sure that you followed the Sabbath. Jesus said, that's not what it's for. It was created for man. We need rest. In fact, if you get nothing out of this sermon, I want you to do this. I want you to go home this afternoon, and I want you to do something weird. I want you to make a to-don't list. Okay? How many of you make to-do lists? All right? I want you to make a to-don't list. And that is things that you are currently doing that are no longer important enough to do. And I want you to write it down and begin to follow the to-don't list. Because you're going to need some time to rest and recover and recuperate. You need a Sabbath. You also need good food, real food. Now, I'm not talking about the stuff you eat, although that's important. Do you all realize that we are a nation that is malnourished? you all know who Howard Hughes is? How many of you know who Howard Hughes is? What's Howard Hughes known for? When he died, he was considered the... One of the wealthiest men in the world. Does anybody know what he died of? Starvation and dehydration. Now, he was a little weird. Yeah, he was weird. Not in a God way, not in a good way. He was weird. Maybe I've seen the movie The Aviators about him with Leo DiCaprio and all that. But we are a nation that has all these resources and we are malnourished. We don't eat the right stuff. Do you know that in the early 1900s, around the turn of the century, the average American ate one pound of sugar a year? Today, we eat about 140 pounds of sugar a year. The average American 40 years ago ate four pounds of French fries a year. We're now over 40 pounds of French fries a year. And that's happening 
physically, it's also happening spiritually. People are trying to feed themselves spiritually on all kinds of nonsense that's not good for you. It makes you spiritually malnourished. It is terrible. You need to get in the Word of God. One of the things I loved about Callie's testimony was she said that when she really began to grow is when she began to try to spend daily time in the Word of God. You need to put yourself under good biblical teaching. You need to read the scriptures. You need to do things and set aside time to feed yourself and your family spiritually. Those of us that are parents, our kids are getting fed continually in this world. Through internet, through school, through television, through radio. We need to make sure that we have set aside ways for them to be spiritually nourished with real food. You need a Sabbath, you need real food, and the last thing is you need a sovereign Savior. The biggest issue people have, and the reason that they run themselves ragged with time, is because they don't trust God can do what God says He'll do. They think they've got to take care of it all. And if they slow down at any moment, the world is going to stop spinning on its axis. Have you ever gone out of town for a little while, gone on a vacation or a trip, and you come back into town and you get that sense that, you know, this town really didn't miss me at all. It's kind of still going like it's always kind of gone. Sometimes we convince ourselves that we are more important than we are. Ephesians 5 says that we are to make the most out of every moment. That means we do what God calls us to do and we leave the rest up to Him. And trust He's going to take care of us. You ever heard somebody say the, the phrase, but if I don't do it, nobody will. Listen, if it's not your job to do, then you trust God that somebody else will take care of it. Y'all notice there's been a clock running this whole time? Yeah, that's just, y'all are like, I'm glad that he'll see how long he preaches. I mean, we over 30 minutes here. Here's my question. We've just spent 34 minutes talking about time. It's been ticking away every moment that we've been talking. Are those going to be moments that you're going to walk out of here and it's not going to mean a thing to you? Or are those 34 minutes going to be something that you can use and take steps towards making the most of every opportunity? Listen, if you walk out of here and nothing's different, nothing's changed, you don't make any corrections to your schedules that are overfilled, then you have wasted this 35 minutes. And you were like Martha who was completely distracted by the other things of her life and didn't focus on what was being taught. And I'm just talking about me and my words. I'm talking about what the Scripture teaches. But if you take this moment, this 35 minutes, and it alters how you see time and opportunity, it can radically change how you live your life. What are you going to do? Make the most of it or let it waste away? Let's pray.